0: Bibles, if you will, turn to John chapter 20. Once again, we're going to finish up John chapter 20 here. And uh, this is really the kind of the second uh, message on belief, because uh, that's a theme of these verses as well. John chapter 20, actually the theme verses for this entire book. We've referred to them earlier in our study, and now we come... uh, to them, and uh, notice verse 30 and 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Life through his name. I wasn't uh, intending to uh, uh, really get into this aspect of it, but I was noticing how. It says, believing you might have life through his name. Uh, if you uh, have ever had an opportunity to, uh, and I trust you don't on a regular basis refer to the new versions of, of scripture, but if you, uh, in my study, I come across the new versions and they'll say they'll have life in his name. I think there's a big difference having life through his name. You know, it's through the name of Jesus. It's through His death on the cross. It's not just in it. Uh, I think that's a, uh, that's a significant difference that uh, the modern uh, translations have, and uh, very few uh, will say through, but uh, that's, uh, that's extra. I won't pay, uh, charge you for that. All right. But today let's look at uh, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. As John comes to the close of this Gospel, he makes uh, a very important observation. There are plenty of attesting uh, miracles which Jesus performed that uh, are not recorded uh, in the Gospel here. He says uh, uh, many things which are not written in this book. Uh, Now, we know that this is very practical in the sense that when we compare the synoptic Gospels, you know what the synoptic Gospels are? They're Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, they pretty much follow the same timeline, the uh, same events and so forth. The synoptics have many different miracles and teachings, which John doesn't record. I think it's God's intention through John is to go beyond even that with his comments at this point, for the idea is that in the limited space of the four Gospels, we do not have everything that Jesus Christ did, but we do have enough. We have enough. Uh, We have exactly what the Holy Spirit planned for us to have so that we might understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, what is written has been stated so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, The other signs are important, but unnecessary for true faith. We see this evidenced on a number of occasions when followers uh, were more enamored with the miracles that Jesus did than in his person or his message that he proclaimed. Uh, He rebuked the evil generation that craved after signs, but would not believe the clear invitation or the clear revelation of God found in the person of Christ. Now, our own day has had a rise of this kind of mentality. People are not satisfied with Jesus Christ and the revelation found in the gospel. Uh, they want signs and wonders. Uh, they want to go from place to place and and seek after miracles and healings and signs. And uh do they need these things to convince them that Jesus Christ and Him crucified, buried, and risen from the dead? I don't think so. Uh, according to the message that John delivers here, uh, instead, they seek these signs to satisfy their curiosity, or uh, they just want to see something spectacular happen. Boy, that great. We should have been in that service. Man, the guys were falling all over the place, and, and people were, you know, doing this and doing that. Uh, they're just going for a show. They're not going to really understand Jesus Christ. It's interesting that a 17th century Scottish preacher stated the scriptures are not intended mainly for recording multitudes of signs and miracles for the satisfaction of curiosity or which might induce idle men to read them for recreation or putting off time. But the great scope of the scriptures is to direct men how to know Jesus Christ and to save their own souls. It's not... uh, it's not a religion of, of the spectacular and and signs and wonders. It's it's about the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done to save our souls. Now, I want you to notice here John's emphasis, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. John did not stress the continuing needs of signs and wonders, but he's looking instead at the revelation found in the word of God, John was satisfied that even what was contained in this, this gospel was enough, was adequate for a sinner to understand who Jesus is and what, and what he's done and how to have life in him. Now, we have 66 or 65 more books added to this revelation, but he's saying this it would be enough if we didn't have those. This would be enough, even if we didn't have those. Those who are looking for something else to convince them of the necessity of faith in Christ need to look no farther. The message of the gospel is right here, ready for the response of true faith in Jesus Christ. And two questions really uh, faces: Have you heard the gospel, and have you believed it unto salvation? Well, notice, first of all, gospel content. What was or has been written. What has been written? Now we've noticed on numerous occasions that it is important to understand the truth of the gospel before believing. The gospel first affects the mind, then the heart through faith. The gospel is not simply an experience or uh, somehow bypasses the rational thinking processes and goes straight to our emotions for a response. (coughs) Excuse me. And I would grant you that there are plenty of experiences which people have, religious and otherwise, which really bypass the mind. You know, God is interested in in the mind. Uh, Over and over in the scriptures you find the word reason and mind, uh, you know, uh, and how that is involved. And I don't have uh, time to go into a study of that at this point, but that is a tremendous study. I heard something on it this week, and it was it was a blessing. But remember how our Lord called attention to what He is saying so often with the phrase, He that hath an ear, let him hear. Now we've been hearing that uh, for the last several Sundays at the end of each church of the seven churches of Revelation. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And so uh, we need to listen up. Uh this is uh, that was a favorite uh, uh saying of my football coach. Listen up. You know, I I used it when I was coaching too. I'd say listen up. Try to get their attention, you know, okay? Listen. And that's what God's trying to do to us. He's trying to get us to listen. And this demonstrates the necessity for the mind to be engaged in the spiritual processes. For the mind to be impacted, the gospel must be stated in terms that are comprehensible to the human mind. That's why we must give attention to both the exposition of God's word in the pulpit and even in the classroom, as well as explaining the truths of the gospel to those who are unbelieving. You know, uh, just an illustration and uh we think about some kind of a crowd that's gathered to hear a speaker. Uh, it's not significant about this particular crowd here, but uh, some crowds will gather, especially um, big crowds will gather to hear so-called contemporary Christian music or a rock concert, a Christian rock concert. Well, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Christian rock Then doesn't even go together. But uh, their emotions get so uh, so built up that they're willing to follow whatever that person is saying or the music that is being uh, played. Hundreds of people are wildly swaying and acting as though this particular person up there, whether he's playing an instrument or if he's speaking, is acting like this is the deepest need of my life. Listen, it's not a difficult thing to sway people or to induce them to make some kind of response with an outward stimuli. You can get people worked up, you know, with something outward. It's impossible, though, as far as man is concerned, to convert one sinner from his spiritually dead state. I can't make you get saved. I can't make you follow Christ. Now, you know, we can... People have uh, say, okay, let's, uh, you know, that's what cheerleaders are for, you know at ball games. They're to stimulate you to cheer. And they try to get you to chant or cheer or clap or or yell and so forth. Well, we can do that with a physical outward, but it's impossible for me to make you inwardly believe. We rely upon the gospel of Jesus Christ applied by the Holy Spirit for the conversion of sinners. It's just uh, a gospel that John explains in the the pages of his gospel writing. So what is it that constitutes the good news of Christ to, uh, to, to John? Well, of course, we know the death, burial, and resurrection describes the essence of the gospel. But what is it that is important for an unbeliever to grasp so that the death, burial, and resurrection have saving significance? So we're going to do a quick walkthrough okay, this afternoon. You don't have anything else to do today anyway. But let's just quickly walk through the John's Gospel. You say, Pastor, you're going to go through every chapter again? Haven't we already? Just a quick walk through, okay? Don't don't get worried here. What's the, these things have been written? What are we talking about? Well, first of all, in John 1, it was the incarnate Word. That is, the uh, Christ's uniqueness as the Son of God. John begins his gospel with a startling declaration that Jesus Christ is none other than eternal God. He he's he's one who created everything that exists. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then later it says all things were by him, were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. If that's not enough, he tells us that God the creator took on human flesh. So that He might identify with us in our plight, as well as being infinitely sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Down in John 1.14 it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. As God, Jesus Christ satisfies His own judgment against sinners. He gives infinite value to the righteousness on His righteousness on our behalf. As a man sinless in every way, He qualified to be the perfect substitute for us before the wrath of God. Do you believe that He is both God and man? Secondly, the sovereign over nature. In chapter two, you have the uh, in Canaan of Galilee. The Lord attended a wedding in which He turned water into six stone water pots into wine uh, uh, for a wedding feast. And John comments that this was the beginning of miracles that Jesus did in exercising His prerogatives as Creator over nature. He was displaying His glory so that those who had eyes to see would recognize that He is God Himself. While some notable cult groups deny that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, John is emphasizing our understanding of this truth so that we might know the value of Christ's offering On our behalf, do you believe that He's sovereign over all creation? Thirdly, in John 3, the demand of the new birth. Remember, this was a place where uh, Nicodemus came to to see Jesus. And Nicodemus uh, was told uh, by Jesus, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He uh, demands the necessity of being born from above in order to have eternal life. And this puts the attention of our salvation upon God Himself. We must understand that salvation is not a mere decision which we we make whenever we decide it sounds good to me. The spiritual condition of man as a desperate sinner, hopelessly lost, dead in trespasses and sins, demands that if he is to have life, he cannot come from himself. It's not something you just woke up one morning and said, you know, I think I'll get saved today no it's not something that that you can just d- decide one day you must understand that you cannot birth yourself into the kingdom of god just like you couldn't birth yourself into this world physically it was the holy spirit of god that accomplishes this work and this puts us up in a position of looking to god for his mercy and saving us the person who thinks that he will get saved Someday, whenever I feel like it. Or, you know, maybe on my deathbed, then I'll say, Okay, Lord, save me. No. A dead man cannot decide to make himself spiritually alive. You see, you're dead when you're not saved. And so... Here's the demand for the new birth. Have you been born again? Jesus is revealed as the only sinner, Savior of sinners in the balance of John 3. It's God who took the initiative out of the greatness of his love and mercy. And I you know, can't help but just marvel in that wonderful verse that everybody seems to know and people put up in the end zones of, uh, of football games, John 3.16. Boy, do they really know what it means? Probably not. The demand for the new birth. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Chapter 4, the water of life. Remember the woman at the well Uh, was living in the depths of sinfulness. The revelation of Christ, her sins were exposed. And it was uh, her dependence upon a false understanding of God and what continues... Can, uh, constitutes true worship. Jesus claimed to be the only one who could give her the living water, his own saving life, to quench the eternal thirst of her soul. Chapter five: Jesus Christ, the God of the very God. At the heart of the unbelief that persisted among the Jews of the first century was the fact that, you know, they just couldn't bring themselves to believe that Jesus was God they couldn't make them believe themselves believe that he was deity and so for them the idea of god coming near and dwelling among them that was completely foreign and yet to be saved from sin a person must understand that jesus was not simply just a great man he was a very god of he was very god of very god jesus claimed equality with god which caused the jews to resist him And in claiming equality with God, Jesus is either boasting of something beyond him, which would be true of anyone else but God, or he's stating that which is true in every way. So he gives, in chapter 5, a series of comparisons and similitudes concerning the Father and the Son. Chapter 6 is the bread of life. The sixth Uh, John 6 is one of the most powerful passages of God's Word in terms of describing the inadequacy of of every person for salvation apart from Christ, the sovereign pleasure of of God in our salvation. Bread is considered to be the staff of life, the very basic food that supplies life-giving nutrients to the world's population. Jesus uses this imagery to explain his sufficiency for all spiritual emptiness and need to consume him by faith. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Now, in most shocking terms, Jesus demands that to have eternal life, we find him alone to be our bread and drink. He alone, through bearing our sins in His own flesh on the cross and shedding His blood in atoning death, can avail for us for eternity. We cannot drink of the wells of our self-trust. We can't drink of the wells of man-made religion or the wells of idolatry or the wells of just coming to church. He alone is to be our food. And He alone is to be our drink. I trust that you're not uh, trying to satisfy your spiritual needs through something plus Christ, but you're trusting Him alone as your bread, the bread of life. John chapter 7 hated by the world. Because Jesus Christ is very God and of very God, because He's sinless, because He speaks nothing but the truth, the world reacts to Him in hatred. Chapter 7, verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it, hate it me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. You see, Jesus was exposing the works of darkness and sinfulness that the world uh, and those who live in it, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It says back in chapter 3, verse 19, The glorious light of Christ shows men the wickedness of their hearts and the desperate condition of before a thrice holy God. Chapter 8, Redeemer of Sinners, those who are lost in sin, described as being the servant of sin. Chapter 8, verse 34, it's a picture again of our inability to deliver ourselves from spiritual bondage. Do you realize this? How often we find those who think that through some effort on their own, they will be delivered from guilt and bondage of sin, yet that is impossible. How can sinners be set free? Well, if the, sin there, if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed, it says in, in, in verse 20, uh, 36. So when Christ completed the work of redemption on the cross, He accomplished all that is necessary for us to be brought out of the prison house of sin into the glory of the sons and daughters of the living God. John chapter 9, the light of the world Light exposes darkness, but light also removes darkness. As the light of the world, Jesus removes the darkness that, was, that has veiled our lives so that the hymn writer, we can say, I was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Chapter 10, The Good Shepherd. Sheep are continually wandering and straying away from safety and into grave danger. The sheep have no power to deliver themselves, the Good Shepherd giveth His life for His sheep. He, it is He, Jesus Christ, the Lord, that laid down His life for us. We have no power to save ourselves. We stand before the peril of eternal damnation, but Christ has laid His saving life between us and God's white, hot wrath. Now He calls us by our own names. And we know Him, for He knows us. The Good Shepherd. Chapter 11, the resurrection and the life. How far can Jesus carry us? Well, here you have the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead and declarations which are part of that story. That kind of enables us to see that Jesus Christ's saving worth carries us through eternity. Death did not keep him. Death cannot keep anyone who's in Christ. He is our resurrection in life. We will one day experience the full value of this mighty power on our behalf as He raises us from the dead, clothes us with a glorified body like His own, and lifts us into a wonderful eternal life in His presence. Whosoever liveth and believeth in Me shall never die. Believest thou this? Chapter 12. Glorified by the Father. Jesus made some astounding claims. He claimed to be God. He claimed to, be, uh, to do only those things that please the Father. He claimed to be the light of God in this world. He claimed to come to earth for a particular saving purpose. Now, how do we know that he accomplished all that the Father sent him to do? Well, when our Lord prayed, Father, glorify thy name, we find in John's perspective here this pointed to Jesus accomplishing the work that the Father had sent him to do. What was that work? It was the cross and the resurrection. And John then says, Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. It's a vocal affirmation from heaven that Jesus Christ is who the Word claims Him to be and that He has accomplished all that the Word claims to have accomplished. Chapter 13, Sovereign Yet a Servant. It's a wonderful paradox you find in John chapter 13. While John spends quite a bit of space in this gospel explaining the fact that Jesus is God, here he shows the wonderful example of service rendered by Christ in the washing of the disciples' feet. Of course, there's much more than uh, just an example of service here. Jesus was teaching uh, that as a suffering servant. He has bathed us in his cleansing blood so that in our day, today, lives, we need only to wash our feet in confession for daily fellowship with God. And so he declared that through through what he had done, ye are clean. Chapter 13, verse 10. And you have had your guilt of your sin removed. The eternal stain has been blotted out. You stand before him uh, as a, a cleansed person. Sovereign, yet uh, uh, yet a servant. John chapter 14, the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, as you can see, we're kind of finding the main things that come out of each chapter, what every chapter is, is centered around. The disciples questioned the way to the Father. Of course, it was Thomas that questioned him, and we talked about him this morning. But how does a mere human, chained to the power of sin, find His way into the presence of the Heavenly Father. Well, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I have revealed God and His saving work. And I alone can give you life when you are spiritually dead men. The way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 15, of course, the true vine. Our Lord often used imagery to help us understand various truths about Him. One of the clearest pictures of Christ as the vine and those who have trusted Him uh, as the branches is here in John 15. As the vine, He has given life to the branches. As the vine, He continues to supply all that is necessary for us to live out the demands of the Christian life. Sometimes we grow weary. And we grow weary when we compare our performance with the demands of the Word of God. And yet we find our strength in the process of spiritual growth. And so this text in John 15 reminds us that all the strength, the energy, the power, the joy, the life, which we need to live under the Lord, it's found in our relationship to Him. We must be in Him through faith, and then we rely upon Him trust, uh, and daily trust and confidence. John chapter 16, of course, is the giver of the Holy Spirit. Because he does not dwell permanently among us bodily, that is Jesus Christ, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father as our intercessor. Jesus Christ promised to send the Holy Ghost to every believer. What a wonderful promise from God, this... Holy Spirit comes to us in, to glorify Jesus Christ in us, to teach us spiritual truth, to lead us into the practice of righteousness, to bear witness with our spirits that we're children of God. Paul described the Holy Spirit as an earnest or a down payment of our inter, eternal inheritance, giving us a guarantee that we truly belong to Christ. Chapter 17, the great high priest. We find Christ praying for us in chapter 17. It's the most intimate glimpse at the relationship between the Father and the Son. And here we find Him bearing His soul before the Father on our behalf, praying that the Father might keep us in His name so that we might be one with each other in the body. And in doing so, demonstrate the oneness of the Godhead, and we are kept in relationship to God forever, not because of our performance, but again because of our great high priest who mediated before God on our behalf. The great high priest. John 18. Delivered up for us. Jesus Christ was not powerless before men. Remember, He's the Creator. Yet he was delivered up for us to bear our judgment before God. Paul expressed it like this. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The great love, mercy, and grace of God delivered the son into the hands of sinners. For the entire period of the Lord's earthly ministry, these same people could not lay a hand on him. He kept saying, My hour has not come. But in the Father's eternal purpose, at the right moment, Christ was delivered into the hands of sinners to die the death of one, uh, of one under the horrible weight of eternal condemnation. His hour had come. Well, then John chapter 19, the saving work finished. We find Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, bearing God's judgment against us. We deserve that death and eternal agony. We're sinners. He's the sinless one. Uh, he, uh, we are guilty. He never broke the law of God. Uh, yet Jesus availed for us before the wrath of God so that He would declare in His last breath, It is finished. All that was necessary for us to be declared righteous before God. All that was necessary for God's wrath against us to be satisfied. All that was necessary for God to grant eternal life to us was finished, accomplished, accomplished without the need of adding any human merit. Chapter 20. Well, that's about bringing us up to speed, isn't it? Risen from the dead, Lord and God. Death could not keep Jesus Christ. He who conquered death, sin, hell, and Satan, rose victorious over all the glory of of the Father. And when Thomas realized that he shouldn't have doubted, He confessed, my Lord and my God. From the depths of our own being have we made the same confession. That brings us to chapter 21. We're not going to look at chapter 21 today. We'll save that for next week, the Lord willing. But as we see in the closing chapter, John's gospel, Jesus Christ, demonstrates a continuing compassion for his own. He's going to take a despondent Simon Peter who had denied that he even knew Christ. He's going to reestablish him as one who would tend Christ's sheep. And the word Jesus gave to Peter, and I'll pass it along to all of us as well, was follow me. Follow me. So there's the what of what is written. The gospel content, what has been written. And so that leaves the question, why? And I don't ask this like a two-year-old, but you know how little children, why, Daddy? Why? Why has this been written? And that's what we come to here in our text. The message of John's gospel demands a response. We can try to ignore this gospel, but we ignore what we ignore will judge us in the end. We can try to distort by its meaning into some type of universal salvation, but the result will crush us for eternity on the day of judgment. We can make excuses for not being earnest in seeking to know God, but our excuses will do us no good when we stand before the eternal judge of humanity. So what is the appropriate appropriate response to the gospel contained in this gospel writing? Well John clearly states it here that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. The response the response here is believing that Jesus Christ is the son of God. The response of faith is the only appropriate response to the gospel and you'll notice that believing is focused upon the whole revelation of Jesus Christ as shown in this entire gospel. As the Christ, Jesus is the promised Messiah whom God said would bear our sins and give us new life. He identifies the Christ as the Son of God. As Messiah, he points to the saving work of Jesus Christ. As the Son of God, he points to the person of, of, of Christ as both God and man. Now, faith is really not a complicated term. It goes beyond mere mental acknowledgement. It means to trust in, to rely upon, to rest in, to cast yourself in dependence upon. Faith turns away all other objects of merit. It turns from sin. It rests solely upon the merit of Jesus Christ to give us the right standing before God. Faith sees the offer of eternal life in Jesus Christ and readily embraces it Receiving Jesus Christ in all his saving power, in all his saving offices. Faith lays claim to Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I certainly hope you've believed. You've had this faith. I trust you've abandoned all the efforts of self-trust or resting uh, your eternity in something else than Jesus Christ alone. The response to the gospel. This is to be our response to all that we have said up to this point. But notice also here a gift in the gospel. John says those who do believe receive life in Christ. It says there that believing ye might have life through his name. That's the receiving. That's the gift. The whole theme of life is one that John carries throughout the gospel, even in... to his epistles for Second, Third John, uh, he views life as being both eternal and full of abundance in the presence. To know Christ is to have life. Anything other than is uh, is death. So this message really a quick thumbnail review. Of what John says lies before the world to declare how any person might be delivered from the power of the of darkness and brought into the wondrous light of life in Christ. And so we kind of review this truth today, not for improving our mental capacities. I think it gave you a good outline as far as knowing what the Book of John contains. But it's more than just Bible knowledge. It's again to confront each one of us with the saving work of Jesus Christ. You know, we can talk about the gospel for years. But until you turn from your sin and lay aside self-trust that enslaves you and trust in Jesus, you do not have life. So I would appeal to you to trust Him. The one who is alone, the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for this wonderful book of John. And we've got one more chapter, Lord, but we pray that what we've seen thus far will be a great blessing to us. Help us to understand what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for dying for us, being buried and being risen again. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, opportunity just to review through of the the book that we've studied thus far. We pray your blessing upon the remaining chapter uh, to us in the days to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Number 250, as we close this afternoon.